Hi there. Welcome to another episode of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship guide and coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my services or about the podcast, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you can provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Please do. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. <laughs> so I haven't even asked you yet. So tell everyone what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with. Oh, so. And you said what, three times now? Well, yeah, I have the initial diagnosis. And when? And how old were you? I um, was diagnosed in September. So I have a kind of a crazy story. I was diagnosed in September of 2018. So I went for a routine colonoscopy in July of 2018. I moved, bought a house. We bought a house. We, you know, I, um, so it was a very stressful time. And we moved into the new house at the end of July. I had an obligation to a friend and um, I had to meet her up in Maine. So I, I left for like a week before the, the day we moved into, into the house. Mm. And then, so we're unpacking. I come back, we're unpacking. Everything's a wreck. I'm trying to get myself back on track, get back to work. And I, it's um, now it's close to Labor Day. And I think it's the Friday of Labor Day. At least this is how I remember it. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. I've had a lot of chemo and my memory's not great. Me too. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm thinking this is what happened, but you know, it could be the, that this is the story that I'm now making up and telling others. So, but this is what, what I recall, maybe not exactly what I remember. So I, I remember getting a phone call on my cell phone and it's a beautiful day out. It's, it's like, you know, clear and it's late summer and it's late afternoon and it's Friday and everybody feels great. And I get this call and it's like, this is Dr. So-and-so. Now I don't even remember which doctor it was. And he says, well, I got the results of your colonoscopy. And I said, oh, and I had forgotten about that. I had forgotten all about it. And it's, you know, now it's six weeks later or so. And he says to me, you have cancer. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, he just says, you know, I've never, he says, first he says, I've never had to do this before. And he said, you know, you have cancer. And I, I was like, what? I, that can't be. We're, we're sending, you know, um, the tissue out to another pathologist and we're having it looked at again, but you need to be in touch with your, um, you know, your doctor and you're going to have to see an oncologist and you're probably going to need chemotherapy. That's what he said in this phone call. And that was mm. the end of it. And then it was like, we'll mail you the results. And I just hung up the phone and it was as if it was, it was as if like, I remember thinking that everything kind of stopped and I'm standing like, I think I'm in my office. I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. I remember going outside though. I eventually went outside, but I remember just thinking to myself, 
well, what do I do? You know how we have an emergency response? Like, you know that when somebody's hurt and bleeding, you, you call 911. You know, so you get this horrible information and you don't know what to do with it. You, you don't know. There's nothing. There's no way to help. So, you know, I just kind of stood around. It felt like I stood around for an hour. It was probably like 15 minutes before I started. So I, I'm like, oh, I've got to go see Tom. I'll go to his office. And then I called him, but I didn't get a response. So I knew he wasn't in the office. So I'm like, I'm not going to drive there. Okay. I'll call him and I'll, I can't leave a message. You, you know, like you just have, you just can't think straight. Not at all. And it's, it's one of those times where I think people remember when they heard about 9-11, right? And I feel like for me, learning about having cancer was similar to that feeling. I mean, it was like as if the world was going to end. So here's the, so here's the bad part. So I, I am diagnosed with what's called follicular lymphoma at this point. And follicular lymphoma is very slow growing and it is pervasive. I think it's one of the most common forms of lymphoma. And I call my GP and I say to her, you know, I, I call the office. I'm like, I need it. I need an appointment. You know, um, did you get these results? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, Dr. Holland is going to be out for the next two weeks. So I can't see a doctor. So I find out I have cancer and I can't see a doctor for two weeks. Then I go to the doctor and she's like, oh, it's just follicular lymphoma. You know, we'll go to the oncologist, but you know, we don't really treat that. And I'm like, what? So I go to the, I finally, so in October, so it's not until October that I get to see an oncologist. So I see an oncologist here in the Cape and she says, oh, it's just follicular lymphoma. I know it's non-intuitive, but we don't treat that. We watch and wait. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm watching and waiting and I'm watching and waiting. And I start to get really sick. I start to have horrible pain. I start to feel a ridge below my breastplate. I can feel a hardness that feels to me like a surfboard. It's hard. Mm. And I can, I can feel this hardness. And I start to have excruciating pain in my back. I call the oncologist. You know, it's just follicular lymphoma. We watch and wait. I said, I'm not feeling so good. I know that's how you feel. We can make an appointment. You can come in. So I go in. She grabs my hands and she says, it's okay. It's, you're going to be okay. And I said, I don't feel good. No, it's okay. So oh we watch gosh. and wait. And then a couple of weeks later, I... Note on uh, on a Friday night that my one of my lymph nodes in my groin just I I notice it. By the time Sunday night rolls around, it is doubled in size. I'm like, this is no slow growing cancer. It's doubled. I can see it. It is now visible. Mm. So I call the oncologist. You know, we just watch and wait with follicular lymphoma, and I'm getting sicker and sicker. I end up in the emergency room. I go to the emergency room because I am in so much pain. I am starting to have so much pain in both my 
stomach and abdomen and in my back that I can't eat. I'm losing weight. I'm exhausted and I'm in a lot of pain. And the pain seems to come on at night. And I, the only way I can relieve the pain is to, you know, have myself wrapped in an electric blanket or take a hot shower or sit on a heating pad. Like I'm in my office and I have two heating pads on all the time because I am in so much pain. And I go to the emergency room and they, they do um, another scan. So they do like a CAT scan. And I'm, I'm right now I'm, I'm in, a, I'm taking, I'm on a lot of like painkillers. So I'm on dilaudid while I'm in the emergency room. And the technician comes over, the radiologist comes over to me and he says, you know, I'm looking at your scan. He's like, it says here that you have follicular lymphoma. Is, is there any possibility that you have another kind of cancer? And I said, not that I know of. And I for, I kind of put it out of my head because I'm all drugged up at this right. point. Yep. 100%. Right. And then I go home and I kind of forget about it and I'm sick, but I'm sick. And, and I call my GP again. I go to her and she says to me, I think this is all in your head. All this pain is in your head. I'm going to send you to the pain relief clinic, but honestly, I don't think they can help you. And I don't know how I can help you here. You should have gone to the emergency room. This is really what she said to me. Um, you should have gone to the emergency room if you're in so much pain. So I leave the appointment, I go out to my car and I just cry. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't understand why nobody, nobody gives a crack. I don't understand. So in the meantime, like a year and a half before, um, my best friend ha had been uh, diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma. And we don't live near each other anymore, but we, we talk to each other quite often and she comes to visit every now and then. And so I, I sort of explained to her what's going on. She's like, that's not right. She said, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to be over there. I'm going to be, you know, cause she lives on Nantucket and I live on the Cape. So, that, so she lives, she's an Island away. She's like, I'm going to be on the Cape tomorrow. I'm going to come by and see you. So she comes by and she sees me. And we take my dog for a walk and I ask her if she can walk my dog because I just simply can't do it. Now I could do triathlons. I run marathons. I, I am a very active person and here I am unable to walk my dog. And she says to me, I'm going to find you a doctor. I go, you're, you're going to, you're, you're out of the system now. You know, I'm finding you a doctor. I'm going to talk to my team up at Mass General and we're going to find you a, a lymphoma specialist because something isn't right. So by this time, you know, it's Thanksgiving and she finds me, Amy finds me a doctor and I call them, but the great American healthcare system as it is, they don't take my insurance. I am on, um, Massachusetts had Obamacare before Obamacare, right? So we were the model for Obamacare. So I, yeah, Romney Care. So I'm on Romney Care, and Massachusetts General doesn't take it. And I just, so then I'm sick, and now I have to change insurance. So I have to find, you know, figure out what insurance is going to work. I'm not thinking clearly. So it took me much longer to do this than it should have. Yeah. I called all the wrong people when I should have just called Mass General first and I would have gotten more information. But so, so then I have to change my insurance. 
Now I'm self-employed, so I pay my own insurance. So my insurance doubles, it doubles. And I don't have a choice because I need to go to Mass General. So now I'm paying double and I'm not working as much. So that's stressful. So the stress is kind of compounded. So I make an appointment at Mass General. They can see me as soon as they can, but it ends up not being until December 17th. So I go from Labor Day of 2018 until December 17th of 2018 in pain, getting sicker and sicker with no one listening to me with lymph nodes exploding, you know, all over my body. And I go in and I see Dr. Barnes, who is, is like nationally renowned, nationally renowned expert in lymphoma. And he says, I believe you. He's the first medical person who says to me, I believe you're in pain and I believe there's something wrong. No one else would say that to me. So I'm relieved. I have cancer, but I'm relieved that I feel like it's under control. Like someone's in charge now and someone's going to take care of me. So he gets me in for a scan right away. But again, it's near the holidays. So you know, there's, there's a little bit of a delay. I have to do all the the um, intake stuff. I need blood work. And we all know when we have cancer, blood work, blood work, blood work, blood work. You're like, you know, you're like a pin cushion. I'm always getting blood work, um, which is why I have a port. So anyway, um, finally, I think it's the day before Christmas. We go back to Dr. Barnes. All of my labs are in and he sits me down and he says, well, you know, good news. Your cancer is worse. And he smiles and he says, guys, this is lymphoma. If it's aggressive, we can help you. And he said, there are some really new technologies that have, are happening. There's really exciting things happening in lymphoma now. But we're going to start you on chemo and we need to get you in right away. You have to go have another scan. I needed to have another scan. So in between Christmas and um in New Year's, I had another scan and then I was admitted to the hospital right after New Year's for five days of chemo. You know, they, they do your, um, they find your genetic, genetic markers and that sort of thing. And then they, they fine tune the chemo to you. But I ended up, you know, um, that was the first of my, um, my six rounds of the first set of chemo. And, and it was, it was a horrifying time. It was horrifying, but I was so happy to be at Mass General. And then, you know, I ended up, having to go up almost weekly, you know, it's an hour and a half from here, you know, for blood work and just, you know, I was dehydrated. I often had to go to fusion. I had blood transfusions as well. But, um, so I, I did my six rounds. I got excellent medical care. And then, um, in, on February, on Valentine's day, the, um, because the chemo was working, that's when my small intestine wrapped around one of my tumors and I got horribly sick. I was horribly sick. I was throwing up. I had fevers. I was in horrible pain. It was excruciating. And they rushed me to the hospital here to the emergency room. And then I, I had to um, go in another ambulance up to Boston. So that was another hour 15 in the ambulance. And then they had to do immediate surgery on me because it was a dire situation with this twisted, um, 
it was very toxic and mm. I needed a surgical oncologist and it was this big thing. And then I was in the hospital for 10 days that time. And so during that time I was supposed to get chemo. And um, so they had to, so my chemo was delayed. And it was during that, that stay in the hospital that I was next to, so, so that was the only time I had to share a room. So I'm sharing a room with another person who has cancer, but I don't know, this had never occurred to me, but she had an unusual kind of cancer, one that was treatable, but she became sort of the star patient on the floor because Massachusetts General is a research hospital and everybody wanted her tissue. So there were people coming in and out of the room and, and, and they just wanted, everyone was vying for a tissue sample from her so they could all do research and, and stuff. And so she was sort of like this, you know, entitled patient. She felt she wasn't quite, she wasn't sick like, like me, like she wasn't getting chemo. It, they, she had surgery, like it was a different situation and, and, and every, everything else. And so she was kind of snotty. I, I had a tube up my nose. I had the tube that went into your stomach. I forget now what it's called, yeah. right? So they, they drain your, your, your stomach. I couldn't breathe. I, um, I have asthma and I was snoring. And she was, she was yelling at me for snoring. She's like, you know, can you, you know, can you quiet down over there? And I'm like, this isn't a hotel. It's a hospital. And maybe you're the star of this floor right now, but I'm really, really sick. And to make matters worse, I had a, a nurse come in with a trainee and they I couldn't move. Right? I, I had abdominal surgery. So it was very difficult for me to get in and out of bed. So I had become neutropenic. So my numbers were very low, my white blood cell count. So they moved me to a private room. The nurse and her assistant, they put me in the private room. It's around two o'clock in the afternoon. They set me up and then they leave. I'm on an IV. I'm on two IVs, one for pain and one's, I don't even remember what the other one was. So I'm on two IVs. I had actually three lines, two in one arm and one in another. I didn't have the port yet. And they leave me there and nobody comes in until the shift change at seven o'clock. And I'm going to say this because I'm not embarrassed any longer, but I couldn't get out of bed. And I just peed all over myself. And it was this, I couldn't reach the button. They had put the button, they hung the button up on the wall behind me. And I was there for that amount of time and no one came and they closed the door and no one came in to check on me. And that was the only bad experience I had was that particular stay in the hospital. All the rest of them, and it was outside of my regular team. So it wasn't the same team that I normally would get because this was surgery related. So, so I'm off to a bad start to begin with, with, with everything that's happening to me. Off to a bad start? Yeah. Uh, so that's, no, no, that <laughs> off to yeah. a bad start was when your doctor said, we watch and wait when you were already yes. in pain. You were beyond off to a bad start. Yeah, nobody so it, it nobody started, listening can see me. It started just, horribly. Just my body's contorting and twisting and my eyes are, my face is dropping. I was like, it is... <clears throat> It's textbook of a person new to medical issues, not knowing how to advocate for herself, right. being overwhelmed and ignored by the system. Right. I'm, and that's what you learn to do. 
you learn all you can learn about your situation. So what happened was I, when I finally got to Mass General and I got the new scans, Dr. Barnes had them side by side. We, side, we now had like three sets of scans from, from September to December, maybe four, because I was in the hospital emergency room twice. So I had the scan each time. So I had a bunch of scans and he's like, from November, he said, November until now, your lymphoma has doubled in size. Your, your lymph nodes have doubled in size. And he said, I don't agree with the initial pathology report. I disagree. I think what you have is, um, is a different, is a completely different kind of lymphoma. Is it, is it, is, you know, he said, you have, um, and you know, now that I'm talking about it, I can't remember my kind of lymphoma. Can you believe that? So that's mm. what happens when you have chemo, like you just can't remember. Yeah. Um, but I had non, non Hodgkin's lymphoma and um, diffuse large B cell. So that's actually what I had. And so he very gently says to me, you know, we can treat this here. We see this all the time. You know, would you like me to be your oncologist? And I'm like, sign me up. That's why I'm here. You're listening to me. I want somebody to, you know, be on my side. So that's, so, so that was, you know, like I said, back in December. So, so after the surgery in February, I had my additional rounds of chemo and I finished chemo, I think in mid-May, end of May, and then I was scanned in June and then my lymphoma had come back. So, I had two scans. Okay. So and yeah. What kind of surgery and, did you have? Well, that was the abdominal surgery. And what they did was they removed With about, the yeah, they removed like 15 feet of my, my intestine. Yeah. Had, because it was just, it had become, um, diseased and it had become infected and wound up in knots in there. Oh, so perhaps blood wasn't getting to the wrapped up intestine. Nope. And right. Then... And, and they actually take your intestine out. They put it on a table while the, during the surgery and they unravel it yeah. and then they can see what's diseased and they cut the diseased parts out and then they do what's called resection surgery. So it's major surgery. And yeah, so in addition from having like the chemo, you have to recover from the surgery. So it's very hard to walk. It's very painful. It's hard to get in and out of bed. Yeah, it's very difficult. And so, you know, so I had, eight, you know, six to eight weeks of recovery just from that surgery, but I was also getting chemo at the same time. So once they could get me back into chemo, they got me back into chemo. Right. So, yeah, so I was off by a few weeks, but when I finally finished in May, uh, and this would be May of 2019, you know, I was scheduled for a scan. I think it's like 30 days later they do the scans and, and my, my lymphoma had returned. So, so I had to have more, more chemo. I had so to you have stronger chemo, chemo. Or you received chemo and then it went away. I had, you had a scan and then they saw it came back. Well, it actually, it was... I should, let me, let me clarify that it, it, the chemo worked in certain areas and it was gone from certain areas. There was a particular mass in my, um, small intestine that was being stubborn and that wouldn't go away. So, you know, and the other lymph nodes were okay, but it was this one area that it just was stubborn. So it was refractory. So it just didn't go away. So it was, it, it, you know, the chemo just, it didn't respond to the chemo. Mm. So I went back and I had three more rounds over the summer of 2019. But on July 3rd, they signed me up 
uh, for a research study in case that came back, in case it came back after those three rounds. So they said, we're going to sign you up. It's heads or tails. We don't know which part of the study you're going to, you're going to end up in. You're either going to get a stem cell transplant if, you're, if the, the cancer comes back, or you're going to have the new treatment, which is immunotherapy called CAR T cell. And we're very excited about that. So I had to go in on July 3rd and and be aphorist. So what that means is they put two very large IVs, one in each arm, and they take out your white blood cells. They put them through, they take out your blood and they put it through a centrifuge so that they can divide out the white blood cells. And what they're doing is they're preparing for CAR T. So they need to collect a certain amount of cells. And what they do is re-engineer those cells and they'll put them back in your body if you end up getting CAR T. Well, as fate would have it in August after my last chemo. And now we're coming up on the year of my cancer diagnosis in September, my cancer, that cancer in my abdomen didn't go away. It was still there. And I ended up in the stem cell transplant part of the research study. So if you know of any of the people that you've spoken to have had stem cell transplants, I don't know if you did. Did you, you didn't have to have one to do it. I didn't know. It's pretty arduous. Yeah. And you go back and you have the aphoresis again. And what they do is, you know, again, you're hooked up to um, the centrifuge and they take the blood out and they're looking for the same kind of cells, but they don't re-engineer them. What essentially what happens is they take out your white blood cells and then they give you super chemo, like it, it kills everything. And then they put your white cells back in your body and the idea is now we're starting at a baseline and your, your white blood cells should be able to fight whatever's there. Um, so the aphoresis for this was three days. Normally it takes a day, day and a half. I was hooked up to those machines for three days. It, it's an outpatient thing. So you're exhausted. And then at the end of the day, they have to give you um, drugs that make your white cells grow right? Because they're taking all of them out of you. And those are very painful. So you take the drugs and it makes you sore. It makes your bones sore. It makes you feel just terrible. Everything sore. It gave me headaches. And so when they finally finished that, you know, I get another scan and then they're like, okay, we're going to get you in for the stem cell transplant. We're going to get you in, you know, right in the beginning of October. So I went back into the hospital then. And I was there for three weeks at least. And this is my funny, this is my funny stem cell story. So by this time I had started the hair project. And so I was doing, I was doing that. And I I had the pictures on my phone and I was showing everybody the pictures. And so when they come in to do a stem cell transplant, um, you know, they take your cells and they freeze them. And then they, there's like five or six bags and they, and when it's time they come back in to your room with the, with the bag. So they give you this strong chemo and the strong chemo, um, you know, is, is just, it's just wipes everything out. It wipes you out, you're wiped out and you're very susceptible to any kind of infection at that time. So they come in and Massachusetts general is a teaching hospital. So, you know, it's like, cool. All the students are there because it's a stem cell transplant, right? So, so there's like four doctors in my room. There's like eight interns. There's the specialist, the cell specialist, who, the woman who specializes in 
just giving the cells back and the reconstituting of the cells. And they come in with this little thing on a cart that's sort of like a freezer. And there's like, there's like 25 people in my room. And the chaplain comes in. And the chaplain comes in and he says, you know, you know, I'm here if you would like me to say a few things and bless your cells. That's optional. Obviously, you don't have to do that. But if you feel like, you know, that's something that you want to do, I'm happy to do that for you now. And I'm like, can't hurt. So they take one of the bags of cells. They put it on my lap. Everybody holds hands around my bed. There's all these people. And the chaplain says a prayer and he blesses the cells. And everybody looks at me because they've been to, some of them have been to some cell transplants before and they say, okay, happy birthday. And I'm like, this is what, what am I, Frosty the Snowman? Oh, this is crazy. I'm like, okay, happy birthday to me. And they hook you up and they start giving you the cells. The cells smell to me like onions and garlic. It's like this weird, and seafood. It's had this very crazy smell. And then I started to taste that. I could taste it in my my mouth and in the back of my throat. And the cells are, they're in small bags. They're not big like the IV bags. They're small. And, you know, they're, 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 um, and they inject them. And then, you know, one bag is done. Second bag is done. Well, the third bag comes out of the freezer and they, they defrost it and, and it, it cracks. And they have to reconstitute the whole bag. So they have to, so, you know, everyone's a little bit up in arms. Like, um, this doesn't usually happen. You know, it's a little scary, but we're going to, everything's going to be okay. So my regular nurse, my nurse who's been with me this whole week, she comes in and she's essentially got something that looks like a turkey baster, right? She's like, okay, we're going to do this manually and and we're going to put the cells through your port. So you're accessed. We're going to take the cells from the bag. You know, it's all sterilized again, and we're going to, we're going to put them in. And so she, she takes this turkey baster thing and she puts the cells through my port. And it's the strangest thing. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just not going to watch, you know, this is weird, you know? And she finishes that. They get the other bag prepared. The other bag cracks. So she's oh got to do two bags. Now there's even more people who are worried in my room. It's very high stress now. But they don't want to lose a cell because they could barely get enough cells out of me to, you know, that the minimum that was needed, which I think was like $2 million for the stem cell transplant. They, they barely got that out of me. So they need to get every cell back into me. So she does the second, the, the fourth bag, you know, with the, with the turkey baster. <laughs> But I'm cracking jokes. I'm like, I'm kind of out of it at this point. I'm like, you know, uh, you know, do I get any cranberry sauce sauce with that? I'm like, you know, I love the drumstick. You know, I'm like, I I don't know. I'm making stupid jokes because I'm in in an altered state. Yeah. And so the fifth bag comes out. Hooray. The fifth bag is fine. And they they're able to put that on the IV and it goes on. I'm exhausted. So they get the cells back into me. I feel a little bit weird. Um, but I tell them, you know, I'm okay. I just need to go to sleep. So I pass out. And while I'm sleeping, I have this sensation that I wake up. And I, I look over to, the, to my right. And next to my hospital bed is a, a man dressed in medieval garb. He has on a long velvet sort of tunic. He has this round lit kind of hat with the braid and he has 
you know, a prominent nose. He looks like a monk to me. He, he, he looks like, he looks like he's Italian. And so he doesn't say anything to me, but I feel very comforted in his presence. And he, I can see that he's got some thread and he's, he's got a pair of scissors and he's cutting some thread. And I'm thinking, what's that about? Am I, it's like, like the Greek fates. Am I dying? Is this the end of the road for me? And he takes the thread and he crosses it like this over my, he takes it and he puts it over my neck. It looks like a silk cord. And it essentially he's making the shape of a cancer ribbon, right? And he does that. And I look over at him one more time and I feel comforted. And he just sort of disappears. And I wake up and I feel very at ease and everything's okay. It turns out that the transplant's gone fine and that you know they expect that the cells are going to take that my body won't reject them i seem to be doing okay and you know good news so for the next 24 to 48 hours i become supercharged these cells make me supercharged i i i feel i think sort of like somebody who has is having a manic episode feels i'm making plans. I'm thinking I can write a book in an evening. I am walking around the hospital and I'm like, I can, I can walk, I can do the 20 miles here in the, in the hospital. Right. So I'm supercharged and I can't sleep. And I'm like, you know, and I'm, art, I'm an artist. So, you know, I'm sketching. I'm like, oh, I'm going to redesign my house. So, you know, I start like, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to buy furniture. So I start buying furniture. I'm on the phone. You know, I'm on the on Amazon. I'm on everything. I'm at Wayfair. I'm buying all kinds of stuff. Next day, you know, a couple of days, Tom's like, you know, like, you know, that chair just arrived. He's like, there's like, or next day, there's another big box here. It's, I think there's a rug out in the driveway. He's like, I'm like, oh yeah, I think I ordered that stuff. So I went through this, this high energy sort of time. And then I crashed. And then I was in the hospital for two more weeks because they have to make sure that your white blood cell counts go up. And you feel like crap during this time. You just feel horrible. There's, it's a lot of fatigue. They check you for um, all kinds of things. They, uh, fevers, you know, any kind of infection. You don't get a lot of visitors because it's kind of not a good, good idea for somebody to be visiting you at this time. So, so this is now the end of October of 2019. And finally, after like 28 days or whatever it is, I'm, I'm out of the hospital. They, they let me go. And I can go home, but I have to wear a mask and I can't go into public places. So I'm quarantined for about eight weeks, six to eight weeks, depending on how the treatment goes. And I have to go back up to the hospital. I think for the first week, it's for the first three weeks, it's every other day. They, they want me up there to take my blood and they take the other port out. I had a special port put in that was the trilumen port. It's huge. And they needed that for the, the transplant. So they used both ports and they used my arms. Like they used everything they could have access to. And so you just feel crappy. You, f you feel terrible. And it, now it's like, a you know, now it's it's a year now since I had changed my insurance and I'd gone to Mass General. And slowly I start to feel better. I'm told that it's going to be a long time until I feel better from the stem cell transplant, that it can really knock you on your butt for a long time. And it did. A year later, I still feel fatigue. I still feel, you know, the, the effects from that. So I go home 
And now it's like the beginning of December, just after Thanksgiving. And my brother wants to take me to see a psychic medium. And I'm like, sure, I'm not supposed to be out of the house. I'm not supposed to go anywhere, but I'm going to go see a psychic medium with my brother. And we go. And it's an astonishing reading. And she, it's an hour and a half. And she knows a lot of things that I don't know how she could know, like specific information. She says that Tom's sister is there, but she's confused because Tom's sister is there and she, she, you know, she's a swimmer and Tom's sister's there and she's, she wants to know that she wants you to know that she's okay, but she keeps saying your name over and over again. I don't know why she's saying your name. And I'm like, she's saying her name over and over again. She's telling you what her name is because we have the same name. So, so the psychic was confused because she didn't, she, you know, and that's understandable, right? So at the end of the reading, just all these astonishing things come up. But at the end of the reading, the psychic says to me, she says, there's something you want to ask me. I think there's something else. And I think for a minute, and I said, well, yeah, you know, I had this weird experience during the stem cell transplant. I'm, I'm going to tell you what happened. And I explained to her about the man that showed up and the, and the scissors and the cord and the, and the velvet outfit. And she stops and she's very quiet. She says, this has never happened to me before. But that was Dante, the poet. And Dante wants you to read his work. And that's why he came to visit you. And I'm like, ah, like, really? <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> and, and I don't think much about it. And I go home. A couple of weeks go by. Three weeks go by. I'm still in quarantine. And it, one night I just, I, I, you have a lot of trouble sleeping. And, you know, I, I had all kinds of sleep aids, but a lot of times they didn't help. So I, I decide that, oh, you know what? I never got a chance to go to Wikipedia and look up Dante. I meant, I've been meaning to do that. I majored in literature in school, but for some reason it was the one thing I never read. And, and I knew a little bit about Dante. So I go to the Wikipedia page and the portrait loads and it's a painting by Botticelli and it's a portrait of Dante. And it is the same person that I saw. Now I could have seen this painting before. I, I'm an artist. It's possible I'd seen it. I don't know, but that's the person that I saw. That painting is the painting. And I just, I'm like, oh my God. This is like the strangest thing, you know? So I end up reading, I end up reading, um, the divine comedy. So I, I spend the next, so, so my cancer comes back <laughs> in December and it's still that place. It's still that one place in my abdomen that won't go away. And Dr. Barnes is like, that's great because now he's very enthusiastic. He's like, now we can go to CAR T. You can have the CAR T cell treatment, and we are very hopeful that this is going to be the thing. We've had great success with CAR T. So I, I go in on New Year's Eve. I could either go in right at Christmas or I could go in on New Year's. So I chose to go in on New Year's. And they give me the CAR T. They collected those cells in July. So they, they're giving me those cells that have been re-engineered. And, um, those are the, and it's a, a much smaller process. Well, first they give you chemo, I should say. So you get chemo again. It's another sort of devastating kind of chemo where they wipe everything out. 
And the last drug in that chemo regimen is something called melphalan. And melphalan, it was the smallest bag. It should only take a half an hour. It's the smallest bag. They start putting the melphalan in. And I don't know if you felt like this with your drugs, but you just get to a point where you're like, okay, just hook me up. You know, I'm ready to go. Just hook me up. I, you know, I just, I want it done. So I'm like, yeah, just hook me up. It's the last thing. I'm never going to have to have chemo again. Because if my cancer comes back, they are not going to give me chemo next time. It, I mean, I'm done. This is it. Melphalan is my last stop on the chemo train. They load me up with the melphalan and I can feel it going through my face and I can feel it hitting my brain and I can feel it go across my trigeminal nerves in my face. And I am in the most pain I have ever been in. Oh. And before they give you melphalan, they, you, they have uh, cryotherapy. So you chew on popsicles and ice because it's, for 50% of the people, it alleviates this pain. It avoid, it makes a pain. It just doesn't happen. But I was in the other half that gets the pain. And it was horrifying. So they have to come in. I, I'm ringing the, the thing. I'm like, they unhook me. I'm holding my face in my hands. And okay, we're going to give you, um, we're going to give you a painkiller. So I don't remember what the first painkiller was, but they give me this huge dose right through the, the, the uh, port. And I can feel that. I can feel it go to my heart. I can feel it go through my neck, mm -hmm. in my throat. I can yeah. feel it in my head. And I can feel it in my face. Okay, that feels better. Hook me back up. They hook me up. Melphalan goes back in. I feel it again. It's going through my face. It's going in my brain. And it starts to hurt. And it's horrible. This time they call the, the resident on duty. The doctor comes in. And he's like, we're going to give you morphine. So they give me a hit of morphine right into my port. Wow. Because if I don't finish this round, I can't get the CAR T-cell treatment. I absolutely have to finish this round of chemo. There's no stopping this, this round. You know, I take a deep breath. The morphine makes me a little queasy and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, woozy. I can feel that. I feel it going all through my body. I feel it in my heart. I'm like, okay, we'll try again. They hook me up to the melphalan again. Same thing. I feel the pain in my face and it is excruciating. They come back in, they give me another hit of morphine. We wait 10 minutes, more ice, more popsicles. I am like, as I'm as like, you know, I'm like this, I'm like a noodle at this point. Yeah. And they're like, you've got 15 minutes left in the morphine. You can do it. We've got to get the drug done. So they hook me back up and I barely make it through. And then they, they watch me, they come in every minute they're, they're and the nurse is holding my hand. They, they're, they're bringing me more, anything I want, you know, I can have, but finally I make it through the last 15 minutes and I'm done. And that was the worst of it. And then I was able to get the CAR T cells the next day and that cured me. So it was worth going through this horrible experience that I had. And I know I've taken a long time to explain this, but it was horrible. Many, many scans, so much blood work, so many misdirections, but finally I get what I needed. And so far, so good. A year and two months out, I am still cancer free and I am so thankful. And I would not trade that experience for anything. I really wouldn't. At the time, I, I certainly was not 
singing the praises of having cancer, but now I realize what, how much that experience has impacted me, has made me grown and has turned me into just a much more empathetic person and how much more understanding I have for other humans. So that's my story. And I'm still making hair. We're still doing hair today. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> and I just was a visiting artist at Creighton University last month. And a lot of the students, um, I, I lectured to uh, medical students and to undergrads. And a lot of them have made me pieces. And so I'll be getting those pieces soon. And the, the project has sort of transformed from the bright colors and all of the very exaggerated characters into something that's now black and white. It's a lot more understated. It's more focused on the, the pieces and the shapes of the pieces. And I try to relate it back to my experience uh, with cancer. But so that's where I am now. So I've, I'm still cancer free. Yay. Yay. Absolutely. <laughs> Eileen, yeah, I usually begin by asking guests, you know, what were you diagnosed with and how old were you? And Oh, I I was 52. So oh. I'm I'm going to be 54 next month. So yeah. So I was 52 when I was diagnosed. Wow. And but this time something just said, you know, I was just led elsewhere, you know, intuitively just like we just started talking about your work and that led into a whole other conversation and looking back I'm like, okay, that makes sense now because you had a you had an experience that you needed to share. Like, it's so clear. That's, uh, you went through a lot. You went through a very difficult treatment. And it so, started so, out with not being believed. Yes. Like, my not being believed story is when I had, when I was post-surgery in the hospital, I told them I was in pain. And the resident student, she said, uh, you can't possibly be in pain. You're on this much morphine. So my wife calls the patient advocate and I get, my doctor comes in. He's like, I'm sorry, here's your medication. That's my whole, they didn't listen story. Other than like my, the doctor who misdiagnosed me four times over six months telling me I had hemorrhoids. Oh but my like, God. I, but, but my story's pale in comparison to, you're like, you're like, oh, it's in your head. We can do this. But you're like, yo, I am in pain. I have massive lymph nodes and everything you had to do. And then vacations and holidays and finally get your treatment. And my goodness, that CAR T cell to, to, to receive that, the chemo you had to go through. Like you are. Well, don't tell me I'm a hero. <laughs> <laughs> that was I'm not. Just, what I, I'm not a warrior. No, but you, <laughs> I I admire your strength. I you know it's a. I'm clear that I can say that to you, and you can hear that. You know, there's certain people, certain guests. You know, you can just intuitively tell, like. They're, I'll say it differently. I noticed for myself, in the midst of all my treatments, that. My strength stopped just being what got me through, but it also became who people knew me to be. And then I was living into this idea of who people held me to be. And I was like, wait, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be that. And you know, it 
people can get stuck inside of that, and then the hu your humanity has no space to be. And speaking to you, though, I can say to you, I'm clear I can say to you, like, wow, like, you are very strong. And is it mental? Is it physical? I don't know. Whatever it was, like, it's, there was something in you said, like, you know, we are getting through this. Maybe Dante wrapped that ribbon around you and said, you're doing it. I love that you saw Dante. And then you're like, hilarious. You, you just kind of like do what you have to do. I think you get into this mode where you just do what you have to do. You wanted that CAR T cell immunotherapy. I did. Like, what are we? Okay, let's keep going. Okay, stop. Okay, ready, go. Okay, stop. Like, oh man, I love that the nurse was holding your hand. And like, it's so, you know, we get the staff that we get. And when you get someone who has a compassionate bedside manner, they can be there with you. What a difference that can make. So you don't feel the aloneness because you are alone, but the aloneness is not so overwhelming. It's like, there's someone like mm -hmm. right there. I can just mm -hmm. kind of keep pulling you back and yeah. connecting you. Yeah, it was a, it was a challenge, but I think that, um, I try to always keep my sense of humor about me and, you know, I tried to laugh as much as I could. And I, I really just looked at it as, okay, I'm done with this part. Okay. We're on to the next part. I broke everything down into smaller pieces. So as not to look at the whole treatment as like this giant overwhelming thing, I just sort of said, okay, so today I'm getting this chemo. Um, this afternoon I'm going to get the other one or whatever. And so I just sort of broke it down and it was, it was hard, but I think that as an athlete, I learned to do that through, you know, running long distance. I learned to break things down into smaller pieces. So mentally, in some way that mentally prepared me for this, you know, it was sort of like an endurance, you know, exercise. I'd say. Right. Yeah. Like when you have a long term, I was going to say, I'm not a runner, but like, when there's something I'm doing that requires a lot of me physically, like when I was working on a job, you know, swinging a hammer or swinging a shovel, like you don't, you don't look at that huge pile of rocks you're shoveling and think of you, all you look at is the one scoop and you throw that and you stay there. And when I was going through my diagnosis the first time I created this mantra today, I'm giving up X and I'm being with what's so today I'm giving up how I thought chemo was going to be because right now it, I can't even work and I'm miserable and I'm being with what's so and what's so is I can't work and I'm miserable and I have a lot of resistance to that. And the only way for me to get through it was to just let it in and to not, and to, and to give up resistance to it. And mm -hmm. it sounds like you did something very similar where you're just like, I'm, I'm going to manage this and when I'm done managing this, we'll get to the next piece. Because exactly. And it's acceptance, right? You just have to accept it. I knew that there was no other path but this path. So it wasn't a question of me ever stopping the chemo because I knew I had to get through it. It was just a matter of, okay, I can do it for five more minutes or I can do anything for 30 seconds, right? Like I, you know, like if that's all I can be hooked up for right now, then I'll do it for 30 seconds. But, you know, just, I just kind of broke it down. And I asked them, I'm like, okay, shut it off. You know, it had to be shut off. Then it had to be shut off. I'm like, I'll try again. And that, 
you know, I had other reactions to drugs too. That wasn't the only one, but I had, you know, terrible reactions to some of the other things. And, you know, I just kind of learned that, you know, you just kind of try to keep it in perspective if you can. I mean, it, it's hard to keep things in perspective. I know it is, but you just sort of think, okay, the outcome, what, what's coming after this is what I've been waiting for. I can do it. I can keep going. You know, I can keep going because 80% of the people they treat or something like that with Part-T are cured, you know, or it's, it might even be wow. higher. I'm not sure. It's a wow. high percentage. Yeah. And so I'm like, I've got to make it to that. You know, you just keep going. Yeah. You take a deep breath and you keep going. <laughs> oh, man, it's been a real uh, treat talking with you. Well, I've really enjoyed this. And I'm so happy that I'm, you know, you have me on the show. And I, I think it's so great that you're doing something like this. And I, I, I just think any time that we can share our stories and reach other people and make it helpful for other people that, you know, that's, that keeps me going. If I can reach out and, and help somebody somehow through my story. And I think that's what you're doing is so great because you're just keeping people's stories alive and sharing them with others. And we all learn from that. So I'm so glad that you have the show. Thank you. I appreciate that acknowledgement. I have the show because I want someone who's going through something you've been through to hear this. Or one of their loved ones says, okay, go to the Eileen Powers episode and go to an hour and 32 minutes where she's talking about, about like, this is where Eileen was laughing hysterically at the absurdity, or this is the part where she had to find strength she didn't have, or this is the part where she repeatedly was told, we watch and wait. And it's like, you know, it's, it's disappointing when, you know, you and I are both examples of where we could have advocated for ourselves had we, you know, the awareness to. And, uh, well, I have to thank my friend Amy, and yeah. who still has multiple myeloma, and it's possible that they will use CAR T cell for multiple myeloma soon, but it's still being um, researched. And you know, here I am, hopefully cured, but Amy is not. And I think it's so important that for me to keep keep it in perspective that I was really lucky. I could have been like anyone else. I was just lucky that I came along with this particular kind of cancer at this time. Right. I was lucky. And I'm so fortunate to have been able to be in that research study and to have received the CAR-T. And I have another friend named Lynn and Lynn's been waiting for CAR-T. She lives in Canada. She's been waiting for two and a half years. What? And she's still, hers is a very complicated situation, but with the, with COVID and a lot of other things that have happened with her physically, it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. And she now looks like she's on track. But every time, you know, I, Lynn and I correspond, I think to myself, my God, how lucky was I? I really was. And anything that I can, you know, give to Lynn in terms of energy or any way I can make her you know, feel like she can get through this. I, you know, I try to help as as much as I can. Mm, 
Of course you do. Of course you do. And, you know, as you say that you're lucky, it's... It's a funny word. It's a funny ex way to experience life because, yeah, you are lucky and there's still a lot to navigate. It's like, you know, a ship is at sea and there was a hell of a storm and the main mast broke, whatever that's called, and they're having a hell of a time navigating now and they're still way out there and food is low like, yeah, they're lucky. <laughs> and and they ain't home yet. And like, you are home as far as like, you know, you're cancer free. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, and there's all there is for you to navigate now as far as post-treatment and all the seeds that were planted that will now germinate and sprout and grow. And, you know, I think it's realistic to say, yeah, you know, some of those seeds are for me, who I've grown into that uh, I really celebrate. And other seeds were planted that, you know, I'm like, oh, that's a weed. <laughs> <laughs> that line of thinking, that's not helping. Okay. You know. Uh, so it's... Uh, and I say luck, but again, it's where our language falls short. I think our our language, we just don't have a word. Maybe, maybe another culture does, but we just don't seem to have a word for that situation. I think luck is not quite the right word, but it's the only one I have. So I hope it doesn't offend anyone. I, I can't. If, and if anyone has a better word, please let me know. Yeah. Someone will probably be offended. I mean, human beings are pretty good at that. <laughs> I had to get over that hurdle when I decided to create this. Mm -hmm. Like, what are people going to think? I'm like, well, I'll tell you what I think. I am committed. I am committed to transforming the cultural conversation about cancer. It's not a death sentence. It's difficult. So many aspects of it are not addressed, not on purpose. You know, we're just trying to stop all the leaks and you can't, sometimes you can't rebuild the wall until you stop the leaks. And we're, you know, we're doing all we can to have treatments work, to keep people alive, to have the most healthy, non-invasive treatments as whatever we can find. And I want that conversation about all of that. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. It's still in its infancy. There's a great book, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. Yeah, You know the book, yeah. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And, you know, it, it's... There could be more chapters added now because, like, you, you speak about this, you know, immunotherapy. Like, in 2011, when I was getting treatment, I don't believe there was immunotherapy. And if there was, it was some seriously, you know, uh, like, specific diagnosed treatments, not mine. You know, I don't it's – uh, it's incredible what – it's incredible how treatment has progressed and – there is a huge gap between the conversations people like you and I have and the cultural conversation about cancer. Yes. Amen. Yes, sir. <laughs> so thank you. You are an incredibly generous person in how you share your experience 
And again, I love your feed. I love your artwork and you putting yourself on the other side of the lens. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I fell in love with you as soon as I saw your feed. I'm like, this is fantastic. Oh my goodness. I would have never thought of this. And it's, it's so valuable. And I, and I see the comments and people just love what you're doing. And I hope that this podcast, in addition to forwarding the conversation, I hope this podcast will also bring your work to many, many more people. I hope so. I, I hope that one day that people will see the work and they will make hair for their friends. Like, and I photograph them. I'm hoping that someday this could be something that people do for others and I don't have to be involved. I, that I'm just a catalyst for someone else's creative expression and expressive activity. That would make me so happy. So it sounds like you're saying, yeah, you see that you see this, you like it, steal it, use it, fulfill yourself, be creative. Yes. Yep. Oh, you're the best. Thank you so much, Eileen. It's great to meet you. Great oh, to talk thank with you. you. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much. And thanks for the show. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.